You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. On today's episode of BGM Politics, we're talking to Brianna Gray. Brianna Gray is the National Press Secretary for Presidential Candidate and Senator of Vermont, Bernie Sanders. Prior to joining the campaign, she was an attorney, columnist, and senior politics editor at The Intercept. Before serving in this role, Brianna practiced law at a boutique litigation firm in New York City and was the contributing editor to Current Affairs Magazine. She received a doctorate from Harvard Law School in 2011 and a BA from Harvard College in 2007. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, and The Week, among others. Her insights regarding the weaponization of identity in the contemporary political sphere can be found in the fusion documentary Trumpland, Kill All Normies, as well as a variety of podcasts and online programs, including NPR, TYT, and The Real News. Here's an interview with Brianna and Senator, as well as presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, on episode one of Hear the Burn, Bernie Gets Personal. As the campaign's national press secretary, I sit with other members of the communications team. Belen Sisa, a 25-year-old Arizonan DACA recipient who was brought to the States at age six, is our Latino department press secretary and a veteran of the Bernie 2016 campaign. Bill Needhart, our Midwest press secretary, previously worked in Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin's office. Belin is a bubbly extrovert who's as down to talk essential oils as she is electoral politics. Bill, age 28, is the taskmaster of the table, constantly shaming me with his ability to get through pages and pages of to-do items neatly written on graph paper. It's a fun dynamic. Last week, I sat down with Senator Sanders to talk about the campaign, why he's running, and what makes him unique among a crowded field. Hello, Senator Sanders, and thank you so much for joining us for this inaugural episode of Hear the Burn. Good to be with you, Brianna. But this isn't your first time in a recording studio. Mm, probably my two millionth time, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Ever since I was mayor of Burlington, I thought it was important to communicate directly with the people because I think the corporate media often does not allow us to focus on the most important issues facing the working families of this country. So from way back when, I did appreciate the importance of trying to, in one way or another, talk directly with people, and that's obviously what we're going to do in this campaign as well. So what is it, do you think, that people don't know about you at this point, after having run a campaign in 2016 and gotten a lot more exposure to your political ideas, ideas which at this point have become mainstream, what do they still need to know? All my advisors tell me, my millions of advisors tell me that I don't talk enough about myself, which is probably true. Every Tuesday on Hear the Burn, you can hear Brianna join campaign staffers, surrogates, organizers, activists, artists, and people just like you for conversations about challenges we face and will overcome together. 
So, Brianna, for our listeners that may not be familiar with you and your work, can you tell us how you got into politics? Yeah, it's a pretty unusual and circuitous route, I I think. Um, uh, about a year and a half ago, a little longer than that now, I was just a lawyer sitting at her law firm um, practicing uh, commercial litigation uh, rather unhappily. It was not a good fit for me. It was one of those situations where I thought I would be able to kind of get in and out of corporate law, um, pay off my loans, and then go do what I really wanted to do, which was always to be a writer. Um, But then I started law school in the fall of 2008, uh, about a month before the the financial crisis. And (laughs) the, 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 the financial landscape didn't look quite like what it looked like when I was heading into law school. So I've been practicing for about seven years. And I was so frustrated around the time of the election with the narratives that were out there in the media that I started freelancing, or I attempted to, and I got no positive responses, no no bites on my pieces that I was floating out there. So I decided to start a podcast instead with one of my best friends. We podcasted for about six months um, before I started to try to write again to draw attention to the podcast. And at that point, it started to take off. And I um, published my first piece anonymously or by pseudonym rather in Paste Magazine, that kind of took off. I got a little bolder and published a couple of pieces in Current Affairs, and those uh, really took off. And after that, it was kind of off to the races, and I had this kind of side hustle as a writer, and I was feeling politically validated in a way that I hadn't before. Um, And much to my surprise, around February of the following year, now about just a little over six months into my writing career, I got an offer from The Intercept to come and be full-time as a senior politics editor. Uh, I jumped to the opportunity, happily quit my law firm. They were happy to see me go because they had just gotten wind of the fact that I was doing some other stuff on the side that was a priority. Um, and you know, about a year later, the Sanders campaign approached me. Um, I've always been a leftist. I was frustrated in 2016 and started writing in the first instance because of the erasure of black people and women, um, from the Bernie coalition, you know, the Bernie bro narrative, um, Mm -hmm. and wrote a lot about how identity had been weaponized to try to cover for more mainstream centrist, um, um, more conservative brands of liberalism. And so it wasn't a huge surprise that the campaign had some interest in me. And I, I was a little hesitant because I said, are you sure you want to take me on? You want to bench me because there are only so many progressive black writers um, that are allowed to have a platform these days. Mm. Um, but they assured right. me that this is, I, I would be of more use inside of the campaign. And so now I'm here as an, um, the national press secretary for the campaign. I mean, that's such a compelling story. And then you talk about how you started podcasting and then now you're running a podcast for the Bernie Sanders <laughs> campaign. So a complete 180 from when you first started. Um, and you're currently the press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Tell us what that role entails and how you got there. Yeah, I mean, so the most, I think, visible aspect is representing the campaign um, to the media. So there are mainstream media appearances, um, and those will be ramping up more as the campaign is, the field is kind of narrowing, the campaign is ramping up in earnest, right, at this time of year. But also, um, Senator Sanders has always um, been a fan of alternative media, particularly because um, mainstream media doesn't always cover the kinds of stories that are of greatest interest to working class everyday Americans, right? Um, There's been some studies from uh, uh, FAIR and some other media watch groups that show that the word poverty is only mentioned on mainstream news a handful of times a year and never comes up in debates. And, mm-hmm. and so we have our own 
social media network uh, here at the campaign. We have a streaming show that airs twice a week called The 99. We have the podcast that I host called Hear the Burn. And and in all of these outlets, we work really hard for it to not be kind of like proselytization. I mean, I listened to a bunch of political podcasts before starting Hear the Burn, and I absolutely didn't want it to be like those, (laughs) where it's basically acolytes of the campaign getting on and talking about how much they love the candidate and how cute it is when they, I don't know, cook dinner or drink a beer or all these kind of folksy things. So, you know, I approach it thusly. I say, why am I attracted to left politics? Why do I believe that kind of a movement-based approach is the best way to advance the causes of the communities that I'm most concerned about? What are the the historical um, moments that inform my politics? What do I know about the history of labor in this country? What have I learned recently about the history of democratic politics that make me come to the conclusion that Senator Sanders is the best option in this race? And then what are the stories um, shared with me by other members of the campaign, other people who are supporters that have led them to the same conclusion? Because I think that's the best way rather than just telling someone, you know, just hitting people over the head with policies all the time to the, for them to understand um, kind of the ethos that's that's uniting all of us, us together. Um, and we have had a lot of really fun guests this this today's episode actually that was released um, has um, uh, a young Native American uh, activist uh, and also Naomi Klein talking about the Green New Deal and you know the subjects run the gamut. Yeah, it's a really important podcast to hear, you guys. If you've not checked out, hear the burn. It's amazing. I love the topics, and you have some really great guests on the show. And, you know, Bernie Sanders himself, he's known for a lot of things, most notably his policy positions on health care, wanting every American to be covered under Medicare for all. And he wants to get rid of medical debt and student loan debt. And these philosophies and policies, they fall under what's called democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. So, And that seems to be a word that's very polarizing in, in the community. So can you kind of explain to our listeners what democratic socialism is? Because I feel like there's a lot of people that are using the term and don't understand it. And that's why there's a lot of confusion out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of approaches you could take, but the one I like best is to think of, um, for one, if you're thinking of models of what we're we're talking about, we're talking about um, models of government like you see in Scandinavia, Denmark, um, and when we're talking about healthcare systems, we're talking about places like Canada, right? And the ethos there is to say, instead of having a society that's that privileges the um, success of capital, right? It's right there in the name. Capitalism says, let's structure a society, let's structure our laws to benefit those who hold capital, who hold the most money. Mm-hmm. And instead, we could structure our society in a way that most benefits society, the people, socialism, right? Democratic socialism. So as a lawyer, one of the things that was really kind of... Um, uh, radicalizing for me in some ways was realizing the extent to which the system is very much rigged from the get-go from a legal perspective, right? So you, you take a, a corporate law class and the first day they tell you who is the most vulnerable constituency that needs protection by the law. Now, any intuitive feeling, thinking person will come up with any number of answers that aren't shareholders, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the environment, children, 
animals, a lot of different things you might um, think of, but the answer is in fact shareholders and the entire legal structure is around protecting the rights of capital holding folks, right? If you could look back to the founding of this country, it's all about um, who has rights and privileges, land owning white men, right? So what we're saying is, what, can we take an approach that instead of thinking of what happens to human beings as an afterthought, centers that and works to make sure that markets are effective and obviously goods and services are provided necessarily as, as they're needed, but which doesn't treat um, the fact that you know, 500,000 people go bankrupt because of uh, medical debt every year, or the fact that 30 to 40,000 people die every year from a lack of healthcare, uh, uh, lack of access to healthcare as incidental to just the way things are, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the policy approach then says, we're not going to leave anyone behind. We're not going to adopt a healthcare system that leaves 10 million people uninsured. We're not going to take an approach to climate change that won't have us meeting the IPCC um, requirements for decarbonizing our economy um, before basically the end of the world. You know, we're not going to take an approach that says we're going to close the housing gap. We're going to take an approach that says we're actually going to endeavor to end homelessness. Um, we're going to, to put the money behind building enough houses to actually close the housing shortage and provide mental health services and et cetera that actually accommodate the needs of the, the populations. And it's an approach that really centers human dignity over all else. Why do you think, because, you know, kind of going off of what you just said, when it comes to what socialism is and the difference between that and capitalism, or what democratic socialism is, why do you think that there's a conflation between the kind of socialism that you see in countries like Venezuela, and the kind of socialism that you see in Canada? I think that there is a kind of purposeful um, whitewashing of the historical roots of the problems that do exist in countries like Venezuela, largely because our own government has been um, complicit, mm -hmm. right? So there has been, uh, you know, other forms of government, democratic socialism, other forms of socialism have been perceived, you know, as a threat to, you know, quote unquote, the American way of life since time immemorial. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly learned in school about the domino doctrine and how we had to go and fight in Vietnam because of the threat of, of you know, um, the Red Scare and all of this sort of thing. Um, and the reality is that uh, because of our own interventions, a lot of places all over the world have had, both capitalists and socialists, um, have struggled. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and there is a misattribution of the root cause of what's been going on in a lot of those places. Um, so I think there's a willful desire by folks who have a lot of money and a lot of interest in preserving the current system to smear it. Right. It's not an accident that if you have a um, media outlet like, you know, let's say the the. Um, the Washington Post that's owned by uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post here, that's you know, owned by Jeff Bezos, you know, that maybe the richest man in the world is going to have, um, <laughs> is dis going to disagree with a policy approach that would raise his taxes by billions of dollars a year, right? right? Um, when you have six people in the world, in, the, in this country rather, that own more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans, you get a real imbalance between the kind of messaging you hear about alternative systems um, and what actually has been shown to work uh, on the ground. BGM Politics will return in just a moment. How are you taking care of your mental health and wellness? Is going to a licensed professional and therapist in their office sometimes a daunting process? Well, look no further. 
You can get online counseling through the privacy of your own home, on your computer or your smartphone, through BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling that's done securely online. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And guess what? Financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Feel free to do your research. Visit their website. Read their testimonials. They're posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash BGN. That's better H-E-L-P. And join over 500,000 people that are taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Here at Black Girl Nerds, we are offering you 10% off of your first month. Simply go to betterhelp.com forward slash BGM and you can get 10% off your first month. Take care of yourself today with BetterHelp. Which is why we need to pay attention more to independent media and not rely on legacy media that you see on cable news for our information. Because like you mentioned, um, a lot of those networks and corporations are owned by wealthy people. And Jeff Bezos is an example of someone who owns the Washington Post that can manipulate our media and have us believing something that's not true. So um, I know that's what ha- that's yeah. what's happened for me recently. I'm like, I've got to listen to these independent, you know, thinkers and people that are not having to rely on corporate money or, you know, the military industrial complex and Raytheon uh, to deliver right. their news. And um, I, it's something that more folks should pay attention to. Absolutely. And it's not, I don't mean to, you know, characterize it as a conspiracy theory, because it's not as though Jeff Bezos is picking up the phone and directing individual <laughs> reporters about what to do on a daily basis, right? right. But there are, there's, we understand when we're talking about racism, this idea of institutional bias. But for some reason, the, the bias of not just the elites that own these legacy media outlets, but the elites that tend to work at them, and I say this you know, as someone who had a relatively elite background and working at, you know, an independent media outlet, but like, that's who tends to get these opportunities, Mm -hmm. right? Those people can't take journalism jobs. I certainly couldn't have taken a journalism job if I hadn't gone to law school and been working as a corporate lawyer and have a little bit of savings in the bank first, right? Um, So the the, the perspectives of a more well-to-do, disproportionately white, disproportionately conservative, um, not necessarily socially conservative, but fiscally conservative group are the ones that are reporting the news. And that's why you get less attention to the issues that are affecting predominantly working class, predominantly black and brown people in this country. I have to address the recent news about the impeachment inquiry into Trump's activities, which has been at the forefront of the current news cycle. There's so many mixed opinions on whether or not it is a good idea to impeach. I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Well, Bernie Sanders has said he's, you know, called for an impeachment inquiry for quite some time now. And his emphasis is frequently on it happening quickly, you know, because there is a concern that in an election year, you don't know how it's going to read. Right. And ultimately, the issues that motivate the kinds of people that support this campaign, um, disproportionately working class, black and brown people and and women um, more so than any other candidate um, are issues that affect their day to day life in terms of kind of like kitchen table issues. Right. So there can be a a sort of um, excitement 
fetishization even of these kinds of issues on the mainstream news, but it's not going to motivate someone who's never voted before or who has a number of barriers to voting in front of them to work to overcome them, to take time out of their day to find someone to watch their kids as they come home from their second shift and go to the polls, right? What people want, and, and we saw this in 2016, the, and between 2012 and 2016, in just Milwaukee, in just um, Milwaukee, there were sorry in Wisconsin, there were 88,000 Black people alone who stayed home, mm. right? And when you talk to those people, these aren't people who are politically ignorant or naive or disaffected the way that the press wants to talk about them, right? The media says, um, you know, people who stayed home in 2016, they just don't care what happens to America. They're elites who don't care because what Trump does doesn't affect them. Well, we that's certainly not true of working class people, black people in Milwaukee, in, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. right? But, but the reality is when you talk to them, and a, and a friend and, and journalist of mine, Malika Jabali, wrote a great piece in Current Affairs about this. When you talk to them, what they say is, I didn't see my life materially different under um, either candidate in 2016. And I was disappointed by the extent to which my life didn't materially change under a first black president of, uh, uh, in whom a lot of us had a lot of hopes, right? And we understand that he was up against a lot of obstruction and the full extent of it wasn't his fault, but it, it caused people to become disaffected. So there is a concern that not focusing on so-called kitchen table issues without acknowledging the fact that a lot of what was driving um, people's frustrations in 2016 was the fact that premiums had gone up. The average American family is paying over $20,000 a year for healthcare costs in, in, in premiums without even getting to the issue of how much they're paying for deductibles, without getting to the issue of how much they're paying for co-pays, right? It's just not affordable. Um, not to mention the fact that there's 18 million Americans who are paying 50, 50% of their income to housing costs, right? And our entire generation understands what it's like to feel like you can't ever own a home, but postponing uh, having a family because we're all still living in one bedroom apartments. Maybe I'm speaking too much for myself <laughs> and I'm also flexing because it's a hundred percent a studio. Um, but you know, like these are the kinds of things that make us feel like it's actually worth it. And particularly our generation, which historically has not voted in the same, at the same numbers as um, you know, 50 plus voters, you know, we need something to motivate us. We need someone who's going to take climate change seriously and not kick the ball down the road. These are the kinds of existential issues that make a make or break a difference in terms of how much commitment we're going to put behind a candidate. And I think that that's why you see, you know, our, our, um, our, uh, our numbers on, um, uh, how many people have given to the campaign came out today. And even before today, we were the first um, and only campaign to have reached a million individual donors at this stage in the race. And what that shows is that there are at least 1 million people in this country already before millions of Americans have even tuned in who see themselves enough in Bernie Sanders and this agenda to give $2, $3, $10 on a monthly basis, because they know the only way we're going to be able to push back against these uh, powerful moneyed interests is with people power. And you're right. I, you know, Democrats really need to do better with speaking directly to people's issues. It's not just partisanship anymore. It's not just we're better than mm-hmm. Trump anymore. You've got to do more than that. And, um, you know, people are not voting for the lesser of two evils. They're just not voting um, and sort of activating their uh, voice that way. So hopefully right. more people will start listening to folks' issues. One one thing I, I wanted to ask you too was about Bernie's impact on young people and definitely people of color. 
our listeners, mostly black, um, but they're also young and older. Um, I wanted to know Mm -hmm. for those who are unsure about progressive policies Mm -hmm. and want to stick with a, and I'm using air quotes here, a more safer and moderate candidate, what would you say to those people? Well, for one, I think a lot of that crew um, really prioritizes beating Trump, understandably, right? And the reality of the situation is that um, those kind of uh, more moderate uh, policies don't inspire the kind of grassroots movement that you need to match the fervor and enthusiasm that's shown by Trump's base. And, you know, I'd caution people to look at 2016 as an example, right? Uh, the idea of a kind of a status quo uh, enforcing candidate isn't a winning proposition in a world where someone like Donald Trump is still able to paint themselves as an outsider who can, quote unquote, shake um, shake up the swamp, right? Mm-hmm. Clear out the swamp. And when you look at the numbers, not only is Bernie Sanders the only person to have more individual donations than Donald Trump, he has, is doing particularly well in Obama to Trump districts or Obama, Obama to Trump districts even. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those exact places where, um, we lost the democratic party, lost a lot of working class support, um, both white and black, the black part being largely under discussed, you know, as it was in, in Wisconsin, um, those same districts really that went for Bernie and those States went for Bernie, right. States like Michigan, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, where he continues to have a very high favorability and be polling very strong. So that's, that's for one. Another, another, if I can just be, um, if I can just level, cause I've been having a lot of these conversations with my, some more moderate friends of mine recently. And a, a trend that I've noticed is a kind of, um, they're, they're good people and we share the same values and we want a better world in the exact same ways. But the, the core difference between my frame of reference and theirs, I think, is just a belief that things can be better. And I think that sometimes in life, in politics, when we've had so many years, so many decades of politicians telling us the excuses for why we can't have more things why we can't have a better world, why we should be comf- like comfortable in the status quo. When someone comes along and actually tells you it can be better, it the implications for your own belief system are that, oh, well, I was settling when I didn't have to. And does that make me like somehow a bad person for not having been trying harder this whole time? And I've, I've butt up against this, a little bit of a, a defensiveness in some friends of mine um, for whom the implication seems to be, you know, well, what are you telling me? I'm a, I'm a bad person for not wanting $15 minimum wage. Of course, I want a $15 minimum wage, but, you know, that's just unrealistic. Or do you think I don't want everyone to have health care? Of course I do. But of course it can't happen because if it could happen, what does it mean that it hasn't happened already? What does it mean about the politicians and the people that we've been supporting and the movements that we've been a part of if it hasn't happened already? And I, I want to really credit that difficult cognitive shift. Um, and since this is Black Girl Nerds, I want to say that I think that part of why I'm a little bit more open to it and some of us are more open to it, I think it's because I grew up watching Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up as a Trekkie where my goal, my projection for what the world should be like um, wasn't just a little bit better than what it is now. It's not that it's incrementally better 
incrementally better. It's not that even black people and white people have the same amount of wealth in a, in a society that's still equally economically stratified as it is today. You know, to me, it's not enough that, you know, it's certainly better, you know, if there's an equal number of black wealthy people and black middle class people and black poor people as there are whites. But that's not an aspiration. An aspiration is this Star Trek future where all of our needs and wants are taken care of. And the head of Starfleet isn't someone from a military background, but someone who is a space archaeologist, because those are the kind of careers that we go into when we are free from having to um, basically participate in wage slavery. You know, Jake Sisko grows up and he becomes a novelist. Um, Captain, you know, Commander Sisko's dad is a, a chef uh, in New Orleans, right? We can all kind of explore, you know, people, we're caretakers, we're botanists, we're Keiko O'Brien's, you know, we're not um, kind of endlessly endlessly toiling. And so if you have that perspective, if you believe that things can be better, and if you understand that the reason things aren't better isn't because we don't have enough money, it isn't because we can't pay for it, it's because wealth has been unconscionably distributed um, so that there are literally a handful of people that have more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. Well, then the, the, wor- the possibilities are really extraordinary. And it's a really exciting time to be alive and an exciting time to be a part of this movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I I wanted to kind of piggyback off of that last question, too, because, you know, you mentioned sort of cognitive thought of people when it comes to certain issues. And one of the big ones is taxes. I think that that's kind of what's got a lot of people apprehensive, especially when we are talking about, you know, paying for everybody's health care and getting rid of student loan debt and medical debt. And then uh, mm-hmm. Bernie's very comprehensive housing plan. Um, people are like, well, how, how are we going to pay for this? And I find it interesting that these questions are always raised when it comes to helping people. But then when it comes to starting wars and, you know, the money that is the ridiculous amount of money that's grossly spent on, you know, arms and weapons and the military, nobody ever asks those kinds of questions. (laughs) Right. So why do you think that is? Uh, You know, uh, (laughs) to be frank, it doesn't it doesn't serve the interest of the power that be to say that we should be using money to have a social safety net to make sure all of the people in this country are well taken care of, right? Look, Mm -hmm. if you are someone like Jeff Bezos and you're looking for a large workforce to deliver all of our groceries and books and products all over the world, you, what you don't want is a workforce that is comfortable and safe. Because that's someone who can say, I don't like the conditions here. I don't like the fact that I'm sleeping in my car, as many people who work for Amazon reported. I don't like the fact that I'm having to urinate in bottles during my you know, 10-minute breaks that I get every day. Mm. I'm just going to leave and find a new job. But if we have a system like we have, which is an employer-based healthcare system, well, now suddenly I can't leave to find better work without putting my family at risk. I can't leave if I have student debt payments that I have to make on a monthly basis. I can't leave if my rent is such an extraordinary percentage of my income that I, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And it it, it is a benefit to corporate titans for all of us to be living this way. And it's not an accident. Look, we used to have mortgages that tied us, tied us to jobs and the land and, and work, work conditions that we didn't, um, that were inhumane. And now it's student debt has become the replacement for it, right? And I experienced, you know, I, I was hardly in, I, I was one of the lucky ones earning a you know good salary as an attorney, but it was work that I found to be not ethically satisfying, not emotionally satisfying. I was 
not in a good place when I was working there. And every day I would look at job listings thinking, what kind of job could I take that enables me to keep up with this, this loan payment, right? right? And in this rent bill, right? <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think that, you know, we, I want to be really clear that we do have pay fors, right? This isn't Bernie Sanders isn't reckless. Uh, he, we're not the, the campaign that necessarily gets as much credit for having plans, but our plans are extraordinarily detailed. There's a reason why everyone on the debate stage is talking about Bernie Sanders, a hundred page um, uh, Medicare for all plan, because this has been worked on by a number of senators, you know, who co who co-signed onto the bill and who have been supporting it. Kirsten Gillibrand notably drafted the um, four year transition approach. I mean, there's just been a all hands on deck effort. And our policy department has been working overtime to take seriously these issues that have been dismissed as unsolvable for too long in American history. Student debt, easy pay for. It's paid for by a 0.05% tax on um, on financial trading. So the same kind of speculative trading that got us into this financial mess in 2009 in the first in instance, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the overwhelming, we serve, we save $2 trillion in medical costs with Medicare for all because of all the waste and profit that are taken out by the pharmaceutical industry, right? You know, we, and it, and it goes on and on and on down the list. Like we, we and our Green New Deal is funded in part by the fact that we spend something like $400 billion a year on military to support or, or to protect our oil routes all over the world. That money could be spent on renewable energies here at home instead of getting ourselves into these um, uh, exploitative scrapes all over the planet. Right. So so the paper is there and I encourage anybody who's curious about them to head to our website and to also check out all of these explainer videos that we do to try to really simplify the policies um, that you can find on our uh, YouTube page. And I think are also now being incorporated more um, into the website itself. So last question, you had brought up that you grew up on Star Trek. So this is a very important topic for Black Girl Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> More important than all the questions I've asked you are. Um, who is the best captain of all time and why? Okay, so there was a time in my life, because I was born in 1985, and I am of that generation, the next generation that I would have said Jean-Luc Picard. And my man has a lot of amazing attributes. He is by far the most, um, he's got, like, I have a little bit of a thing with like withholding older male parental figures. <laughs> so, like I, I love, like I, he will always have a place in my heart, but as I grew older and wisened up, and, and went back and rewatched Deep Space Nine as an adult, mm. I realized that there's just no beating Captain Benjamin Sisko because he is able, you know, uh, Commander Benjamin Sisko, because he is able to wed that kind of um, emotive, caretaking, loving, um, you know, single father personality with um, a kind of no nonsense appeal that enables him to be an effective leader in the middle, you know, on the edge of the galaxy. You know what I mean? He's someone yeah. who can, you know, you, you, there's no world in which Captain Picard was going to be like, okay, I'll be your emissary. True. Okay? <laughs> there's no world he was like, I'm going to like just let this slide and be a godlike figure to a tire for the planet of people. And he wouldn't have been a good in that role anyway. He didn't have that kind of like metaphysical, emotive, like dreamer, like side of him. Mm -hmm. You know, he could, he could barely get a relationship off the ground and, you know, Vosh and Beverly, like, come on. Like, he, like, I love him to death, but that's not, that's, 
you know, he wasn't the full package the way that Benjamin Sisko was. And the relationship between him and Jake um, is one of the most tender, honestly wrought relationships between a Black parent and a child that I've ever seen on television to this day. And it still brings me, that first, that pilot episode still will bring me to tears. Mm. You know what? I, I can't even weigh in on this myself because I have not seen, seriously, I've, I've not seen Deep Space Nine. And people, what? I know, I know, I've lost my nerd card right there. Um, um, but people that talk to me that have seen Deep Space Nine always say Captain Cisco. Um, so I really need to go in and watch that. My favorite is Picard because he was the captain that I grew up on. Um, I did see some of the other shows, but um, the next generation was definitely mine. Um, are you excited though about the new Picard show that's going to be coming out? I am. I'm so excited. So I, I had an ex that once said, "Without Benjamin Sisko, Barack Obama wouldn't have been president." <laughs> and so now I'm saying because Patrick Stewart is a rather um, as, as an older gentleman who still got it, I'm going to say that if if Pat if uh, um, Captain Picard can be president, so can Bernie Sanders. All right. <laughs> well, here's to that. And thank you so much, Brianna, for coming on Black Girl Nerds. Um, Brianna Joy Gray, National Press Secretary for Bernie Sanders' campaign. I know you are going to be very busy, and um, we're wishing you and the campaign all the best. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. That's all, folks. That wraps up our series of BGM Politics. I hope you enjoyed this limited edition of our show. Really excited that we brought in some great guests, some really great progressive voices, and hope you learned a lot from this season. I really hope to bring some more in the future. However, I do need your support. This is an independently funded podcast. So if you do like what you are listening to, do two things. You can just go to patreon.com forward slash black girl nerds. Also, let us know on iTunes how you feel about it. You can give us a rating and leave us a comment. Let me know. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, then don't leave a comment. The music for BGM Politics is by Filmstro. Simply go to filmstro.com forward slash music. So thanks for tuning in to BGM Politics, and we'll see you in 2020. Bye.